Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. My name is Daniel Alarcon. I'm the author of a book of stories called War by Candlelight. It came out a couple years ago by HarperCollins, and I'm going to be reading from my second book, a novel entitled Lost City Radio. This uh, novel is set in an unnamed Latin American country in the capital city. It's about 10 years after uh, a civil war, and the protagonist of uh, the novel is a woman named Norma who runs a radio show. The defeated insurgency was called the IL, and in the post-war era, all the cities have been uh, replaced. The city names have been replaced with numbers. The novel opens when a boy from the jungle named Victor shows up at the radio station where Norma works with a list of the names of the people missing from his village. Her voice was her greatest asset, her career and her fate. Elmer called it gold that stank of empathy. Before he disappeared, Ray claimed he fell in love again every time she said good morning. You should have been a singer, he said, though she couldn't even carry a tune. Norma had worked in radio all her life beginning as a reporter, graduating to newsreader, redeeming the tragedies it fell on her to announce. She was a natural. She knew when to let her voice waver, when to linger on a word, what text to tear through and read as if the words themselves were on fire. The worst news she read softly, without urgency, as if it were poetry. The day Victor arrived, there was a suicide bomber in Palestine, an oil spill off the coast of Spain, and a new champion in American baseball nothing extraordinary, and nothing that affected the country. Reading foreign news was a kind of pretending, Norma thought, this listing of everyday things only confirming how peripheral we are, a nation at the edge of the world, a make-believe country outside history. For local news, she relied on the station's policy, which was also the government's policy, to read good news with indifference and make bad news sound hopeful. No one was more skilled than Norma, in her vocal caresses, unemployment figures read like bittersweet laments, declarations of war like love letters. News of mudslides became awestruck meditations on the mysteries of nature, and the twenty or fifty or one hundred dead disappeared in the telling of it. This was her life on weekdays, morning readings of foreign and local disasters, buses plunging off mountain highways, shootouts echoing in the slums by the river, and in the faraway distance, the rest of the world. Saturdays off, and Sunday evenings back at the station for her signature show, Lost City Radio, a program for missing people. The idea was simple. How many refugees had come to the city? How many of them had lost touch with their families? Hundreds of thousands? Millions? The station saw it as a way to profit from the unrest. In the show's ten years on the air, Norma had come to see it as a way to look for her husband. A conflict of interest, Elmer said, but he put her on anyway. Hers was the most trusted and well-loved voice in the country, a phenomenon she herself could not explain. Every Sunday night, for an hour since the last year of the war, Norma took calls from people who imagined she had special powers, that she was mantic and all-seeing, able to pluck the lost, estranged, and missing from the moldering city. Strangers addressed her by her first name and pleaded to be heard. My brother, they'd say, left the village years ago to look for work in the city. His name is, he lives in a district called, he wrote us letters, and then the war began. Norma would cut them off. If they seemed determined to speak of the war, it was always preferable to avoid unpleasant topics. 
So instead, she asked questions about the scent of their mother's cooking or the sound of the wind keening through the valley, the river, the color of the sky. With her prodding, the callers revisited village life and all that had been left behind, inviting their lost people to remember with them, Are you there, brother? And Norma listened, and then repeated the names in her mellifluous voice, and the board would light up with calls, lonely red lights, people longing to be found. Of course, some were impostors, and these were the saddest of all. Lost City Radio had become the most popular show in the country. Three, sometimes four times a month, there were grand reunions, and these were documented and celebrated with great fanfare. The emotions were authentic. The reunited families traveling from their cramped homes at the edges of the city, arriving at the station with squawking chickens and bulging bags of rice, gifts for Miss Norma. In the parking lot of the station, they'd dance and drink and sing into the early hours of the morning. Norma greeted them all as they lined up to thank her. They were humble people. Tears would well up in their eyes when they met her, not when they saw her, but when she spoke. That voice. The photographers took pictures, and Elmer saw to it that the best images were slapped on billboards, pure and happy images hovering above the serrated city skyline, families now whole again, wearing resplendent smiles. Norma herself never appeared in the photos. Elmer felt it was best to cultivate the mystery. It was the only national radio station left since the war ended. After the IL was defeated, the journalists were imprisoned. Many of her colleagues wound up in prison or worse. They were taken to the moon, some were disappeared, and their names, like her husband's, were forbidden. Each morning, Norma read fictitious, government-approved news. Each afternoon, she submitted the next day's proposed headlines for approval by the censor. These represented, in the scheme of things, very small humiliations. The world can't be changed, and so Norma held out for Sunday. It could happen any week, or at least she used to imagine it could. Ray himself would call. I wandered into the jungle, he might say, and I've lost my woman, the love of my life. Her name is Norma. If he was alive, he was in hiding. He had been accused of terrible things in the months after the war. A list of collaborators was published and read on the air, their names and aliases, along with a shorthand of alleged crimes. Ray had been called an assassin and an intellectual, a provocateur, the man who invented tire-burning. More than three hours' worth of names, and it was decreed that after this public accounting they could not be mentioned again. The I.L. was defeated and disgraced. The country was now in the process of forgetting the war ever happened at all. At the end of the first day, Norma gathered her things and the boy, and they left for her apartment on the far side of the city, an hour away by bus. Victor seemed bewildered by it all. She imagined herself in his situation in this strange and unhappy city of noise and dirt and chose to interpret his silence as strength. All afternoon, the boy had slept on the sofa in the broadcast booth, waking every few hours to stare morosely at her. Besides asking for water, he'd hardly spoken at all. Once, as she read the news, she winked at him, but this had elicited no response. Now she held his hand as they rode and thought of the jungle, Ray's jungle. She had only seen it in photographs. It seemed to be the kind of geography that could inspire terror and joy in equal parts. The I.L. had been strong in Victor's part of the country. They had camps hidden beneath the heavy canopy of the forest and had organized communities of Indians in revolt against the government. They stored weapons and explosives that might still be there, buried in the lonely earth. The bus rolled through the streets in fitful half-block spans. The city sang chromatic and atonal, 
honks and whistles and the low rumbling of a thousand engines. The man seated next to them slept, his head lolling about, his briefcase tight against his chest. A heavy-set boy, a little older than Victor, stood, his face frozen in a scowl, brazenly counting money, daring anyone to take it. It was the same every day, but Norma felt suddenly that she should have taken a cab or a crosstown train, that the spectacle might be overwhelming for a boy from a jungle hamlet, and it was. Victor, she noticed, was trying to slip his little hand out of hers. She gripped it tighter and looked down at him sternly. Careful, she said. He glared and pulled his hand free, waving his liberated fingers in front of his face. The bus jerked to a stop and he dashed off through the door and into the street. Norma could do nothing but follow. It was the purple-hued end of the day. The boy was off and scampering down the sidewalk in and out of the shadows. His steps went tap-tap on the concrete, and Norma was alone in a part of the city she didn't know on a street quieter than most. The buildings were low and thick, so stoutly built they seemed ready to sink under their own weight, their stucco walls painted in mottled pastels. Victor's spindly legs carried him down the block, and there was no way she could catch him. But she should have known by now how the city works. She was born here and raised here, and still its gestures bordered on the perverse even more so after the war. Now it was something else entirely, something stranger. A white-haired man approached from a nearby doorway. He wore a thin gray jacket over a yellowed undershirt. Madame, he said, is that your boy? Victor was a tiny moving shadow bouncing in the orange lights of the street lamps. She nodded. Pardon me, the man said. He raised two fingers to his mouth and blew, piercing the low noise of the street with a sharp whistle. A head shot out of each window, and a moment later a man or woman was standing at the door of each building. The man whistled again. He smiled benevolently at Norma, his warm face touched with red. They waited. Are you new to the neighborhood, he asked. I don't live here, Norma said. She was wary of being recognized. I'm sorry for the trouble. It's no trouble. They waited for a moment longer, and soon a matronly woman in a pale blue house dress was walking up the block, Victor in tow. The man spoke to himself as she approached. Here you are. There we go, as if he were coaching her. She held the boy's hand firmly, and he was hardly struggling at all. With a smile, she led the boy to Norma. Madame, she said, bowing. Your son. Thank you, Norma said. A bus gurgled by, imposing silence on them. The three adults smiled at each other. Poor Victor stood stiff, a prisoner, ready for marching. Night was falling, a cool breeze whispering through the street. The man offered Norma his jacket, but she declined. The woman in the house dress turned to Norma. Shall we help you beat him, she asked graciously, straightening the folds of her dress. The government counseled solid beatings of children in the name of regaining that discipline lost in a decade of war. The station ran public service announcements on the subject. Norma herself had recorded the voiceovers, but she'd never actually hit a child, having no children of her own. It shouldn't have surprised her, but it did. Oh, no, Norma stammered. I wouldn't dare ask for help. It's no problem, the white-haired man said. We look out for each other here. They watched Norma expectantly. Victor, too, with steely eyes. They were such helpful people. Maybe just a slap, Norma said. That's right. The man leaned over the boy. It's how we learn. Isn't that right, son? Victor nodded blankly. She was struck again by how strange the city must seem to him. The truth is, everything had changed. She didn't even recognize it anymore. 
She'd heard of places in the countryside where life continued as it always had, of villages in the mountains, in the jungle, where the war had passed by, unperceived. But not here. Parts of the city had been abandoned. The I.L. had detonated buildings. The army had torched entire neighborhoods in search of subversives. The great blackouts, the Battle of Tamoe, these were wounds severe enough to be named. 1797 had not been spared either. She could see that in Victor's eyes. We are in a new stage, the president had announced, a stage of militarized calm, a rebuilding stage. An unruly child should be punished. The woman held Victor by his shoulders. But how do you do it? Victor was a skeletal thing, a nothing child, easily broken. He didn't blink. He stared. Norma raised her right arm above her head, stalled for a moment. She brushed her hair back. She knew what she had to do. Let gravity guide her, imitate all the mothers she'd seen in the streets, in the markets, on public transport, her duty. She closed her eyes for a moment, long enough to imagine it, Victor's head flopping to one side like a doll's, a red handprint blooming on his cheek. He wouldn't make a sound. I'm sorry, Norma said. I can't. Of course you can. No, I'm sorry. He's not mine. The woman nodded, but she had not understood. She smothered Victor in an embrace. Your mother spoils you, boy, the woman said. She's not my mother. Norma's fingers had gone numb. She looked at the boy and felt terrible. He's not mine, she repeated. The woman in the house dress rubbed the child's bald head. Without looking up at Norma, she said, You sound so familiar. Above, the street lamp flickered on. It was night now. Norma shrugged. I get that a lot. We should be going, she said. Thank you for everything. She's from the radio, said Victor, folding his arms across his chest. Lost city. The white-haired man looked up, startled. God is merciful, he said. Norma watched the glow of recognition pass across their faces. She pulled Victor toward her, took his hand in hers. Don't talk nonsense, child, she scolded. But it was too late. Miss Norma? The woman stepped closer to her, as if by looking at her she could tell. Is that you? Say something, please. Let me hear you. At her side, the man's smile was bright and orange beneath the street lamp. It's her, he said, and whistled a third time, while Norma muttered protests. The streets filled with people. Victor was surrounded by a hot and panting mass of strangers. He buried his face beneath Norma's arms, closed his eyes, and willed the moment to pass. The white-haired man had disappeared, and the woman, too, both absorbed by the rushing crowd. Victor breathed Norma's city smell, the scent of acrid smoke on her clothes, and felt her heart beating. Was she afraid, too? Voices rose around him, urgent human sounds, the heat of shouted prayers, calling, Norma, Norma, Norma. And so it was everywhere, he thought, this worship of her, not just in my far-away village, but here, too, in the central city, in the capital. He looked at the people, at the dark forest of men and women. There was no way out except through them. Norma was warm, but he could feel her body tense. He had brought all this on, this rush of needy pleas, of outstretched hands, fingering tiny, faded photographs, all of this, by simply saying her name. A bearded man pressed closer, wailing toothlessly, his hands caressing an unseen figure as he repeated a name again and again. There was something pained in his eyes. He wore two small rubber sandals, his toes pushing out beyond the soles, grazing the dirty pavement. Victor could see their insides. The people were upon them, tangled and anxious, and suddenly they were moving, Norma holding him tightly, Victor unwilling to let go. 
The white-haired man appeared and whistled again. He waved his arms frantically, and then quite unexpectedly there was silence. Form a line, he ordered. The crowd thinned and spread and organized itself. Victor felt he was watching a choreographed dance. He looked up at Norma. She was pale and tense and afraid. A moment later, a table and two chairs had been arranged for them. The line of people snaked down the block. A hundred eyes were upon them. It seemed they had no choice but to sit. The white-haired man apologized to Norma and Victor. "'What's going on?' Norma asked. "'One name per person,' the white-haired man shouted. "'No more. No cutting in line, or you'll lose your ration card.' He turned and smiled at Norma. "'I'll begin, if you please, madame.' He closed his eyes. "'Sandra. Sandra Tovar.' Someone passed Norma a pen and a piece of paper. She looked at the page and, and back at the white-haired man, saying nothing. "'Aren't you going to write it down?' he asked. Norma blinked. "'I'll do it,' Victor said. "'Can you?' Norma lowered her voice. "'Can you write?' He nodded and took the pen. "'Sandra Tovar,' the white-haired man said again, and Victor wrote the name carefully. The man thanked them both and stepped to the side with a bow. Victor took dictation. The lines moved, moved slowly. Each person stood before Norma, patted Victor on the head, and uttered a single name. They lingered, each of them, until Victor had written the name out and Norma had checked it. She thanked them in a tired voice, offered her condolences. She promised to read the name on the air. A few names she had to spell for him, and for those moments it seemed he was in school again, back home where nothing had changed. The chatter of the people became the sound of rain in the forest, and so it was all a nightmare. Perhaps he had never left the village. He filled a page without thinking. He kept his head down, his eyes on the paper, on these names, on his own hand, carefully tracing letters. Then, Adela. He'd been at it for twenty minutes when he heard his mother's name. Victor looked up to see a thin, unshaven man holding a knit cap in his hands. He thought for a moment he must know the man, that the man must know him, that his two-day journey was over, that there was some sense in all of this. Victor put the pen down. He noticed for the first time that it was night. Adela, the man said again. In a low voice, he began spelling it. I know how to write it, Victor said. How could he not? What manners, a woman in line said. Do you know her? Do you know my mother, Victor asked. The man frowned. Who are you, boy? Victor felt suddenly lightheaded. It wasn't his mother at all. It couldn't be. How many Adelas were there? He heard Norma ask if he was okay. Through nearly closed eyelids, he saw the man put on his knit cap and walk away quickly. Victor. He leaned over and threw up beneath the table. Then there was a commotion. Don't hold up the line, a voice called. Move the child. Someone handed Victor a glass of water. They were surrounded again. How long had they been there? The white-haired man was yelling, but this time no one was listening. Norma had him in her arms. We're going, she whispered to Victor. We're going. Can you stand? He nodded. He was wobbly on his feet, but he managed. The crowd parted, but they let their fingers graze over Norma as she passed. Light, inoffensive touches, hopeful touches, as if she were an amulet or the image of a saint. Their hands washed over Victor as well. There was noise, shouting, an engine backfiring. The crowd swelled. It was impossible to tell how many people they were or where they had come from. They towered over Victor and blotted out the sky. He wanted to tell Norma that he was sorry. He cowered. The people loved her, and he understood this. They called her name. They would never hurt her. He was safe. To 
subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.